Look with me, please, in Genesis, the third chapter. Genesis chapter 3. We began with this last Friday, a new series that we are calling The Blame Game. The Blame Game. And um, don't assume you know this, don't assume it doesn't apply to you. This applies to everybody. And it is an answer to many, many issues and questions and things. In the third chapter of Genesis, after God had created Adam and Eve and the garden and animals and everything, the enemy came influencing the serpent and challenged and questioned. And verse 1, he, he said to them, in the literal Young's translation, it says it like this, Is it true that God has said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's how the enemy starts, by challenging and questioning the veracity of God's Word. He does that because that is the foundation of our faith. If you question the veracity of God's Word, you no longer have a firm foundation. You no longer have a way to stand and fight the good fight of faith and be an overcomer. Well, he went on to, when the woman answered, he said, well, you won't surely die. And uh, verse 6, the woman took of the fruit and ate it and gave to her husband, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now I want you to notice two things right here in verse 7. They sewed fig leaves together to make themselves aprons or things to gird about them. And uh, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now I want you to notice in verse 7, immediately upon sinning, and failing, they did two things. They tried to cover and they tried to hide. They tried to cover and they tried to hide. In verse uh, 9, the Lord called him and said, Adam, where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now here we, we see one of the big reasons why they tried to cover and hide fear, afraid. He said, uh, that's, that's why I was trying to hide myself. In verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, there's been a, a lot of jokes made about this, and, and, and people have tried to portray some kind of a cartoon that he's pointing to the woman, and the woman's pointing to the serpent, and the serpent would try to point, but there's nobody to point to. But nobody was laughing on this day. There was nothing funny about this. Why was this his response? Notice the first thing that happened on them sinning and falling was trying to cover it up, trying to hide it, and then when that couldn't be done, trying to blame somebody else. This is the nature of the evil one. This is a, an indication that they have fallen that they have taken on the nature of the devil because he is the proudest being and his main weapon is fear. And you'll see between fear and pride is where the bulk of covering, hiding, lying, blaming originates. It was so back then it's been so ever since. 
all the way up until the present time, there are people everywhere, including believers, including Christians, that are trying to cover up and hide and blame because of fear and because of pride. And all of us have made mistakes. This is not about condemnation, but the big problem, and we saw this last week and we'll get into it further, the big problem is that if you do that, if you cover and hide and blame, you won't get help. You won't experience grace and you won't get mercy. And so that's the most serious part of this. You see in this very chapter, when, uh, when he said, who told you this? And, and really, he tried, Adam tried to blame his wife, Eve, and he tried to blame God. He said, well, the woman that you gave me. So there's an implication, you know, if she hadn't led me astray, I wouldn't have done it. And if you hadn't given her to me, I wouldn't have done it. See, this is refusing to take responsibility for your own actions and your own choice. And this is not honest because if you read Timothy, it tells you that Eve was deceived in this ordeal, but that Adam was not. And so he knew exactly what he was doing. When he took that fruit from her and ate it, he was not confused. She was deceived. The devil tricked her, but he was not even tricked. He saw it. He knew what was going on. He had no excuse. And yet, instead of falling down and confessing and asking for mercy, and I often wonder, you know, what would have happened if he had done that or if they'd have done that. They didn't do that. They didn't repent, and they didn't get mercy. They got judgment. You know, the Bible said uh, in verse 13 then, that uh, he said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Well, it's time for her to repent. But she said, the serpent tricked me, and I did it. But again, not repenting, not confessing, not repenting, and so, if you read the next few verses, it's judgment. The Lord held Adam responsible for what he did and spoke judgment. He's, he's going to, uh, in the sweat of his brow and that kind of thing, he, he, he held the woman responsible. She, the, the pains of childbirth, and he held the serpent responsible. This is judgment, judgment, judgment. Well, friend, if you've messed up, if you've sinned, if you come short, you don't want judgment. You want mercy. You want grace. But in order to get that, you have to humble yourself. You have to be honest, and you have to take responsibility for your wrong choices and wrong words and wrong actions. It's called repentance. And if you'll do that, you will get mercy you will experience grace. You'll get the help in the time of need. But if you refuse to take responsibility, you try to cover it, you try to hide it, you try to blame it on other people, you won't get mercy. You won't experience grace. You won't succeed, the Bible says. You'll experience failure and judgment. We don't want that. Now, I know there's, you know, you may already have a question about, well, well what about grace? What about grace? I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. But just a simple thing that'll help you with this, though the Lord has already paid the price for everybody's sins, past, present, and future, that does not mean you have received the forgiveness or that you have received the grace. We're going to see New Testament scriptures that deal with this. Look with me over in Proverbs. Proverbs, the 28th chapter, and verse 13, says just what we've been talking about. So you'll see I'm not just making this up as I go along, but we got this is where we got this. It says, He that covers his sins, what'll happen? He'll be okay? No. 
He won't prosper. Prosper means another way of saying to succeed. It won't be successful. But whoso confesses. Everybody say confesses. See, another way to say confess is to admit it or to acknowledge it. And that's quite different from blaming somebody else. You're not, you're not admitting or acknowledging if you're blaming somebody else. Whoever confesses it and forsakes them shall have what? Mercy. Well, would the person that covers it have mercy? Well, no, he's drawing a contrast. So then the person that's covering and pretending and hiding and blaming is not going to experience mercy. The person that's covering. But the person that confesses or admits or acknowledges, they will have mercy. Thank God for mercy. Oh, somebody say, thank God. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for mercy. Just lift your hands and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for mercy. Thank you, Lord, for mercy. Who's going to get mercy? Who's going to get grace? Well, somebody might say, well, you know, God's merciful and gracious to everyone. He makes it available to everyone, but not everyone receives it. Look with me in James, the fourth chapter, in talking about this. James chapter 4. And verse 6, James 4 and 6, it says, but he, God, he gives more grace. You know, with God, there's always more grace. His grace is part of himself. He's the God of grace. And like himself, it is inexhaustible. This is an amazing thing. To say, what is grace? There, I've heard a lot of folks say, well, it's God's unmerited favor. I wouldn't say that's not true. I would say that's a tiny sliver of what God's grace is. The word grace can be summed up in the word gift. Everything that God has done for us and given to us is in the form of an undeserved, unmerited gift. He didn't do it for us because we earned it, because we deserved it, and yet he gave it to us freely through Jesus' redemptive work and accomplishments. So all the grace of God can be summed up in the word gift. All of his grace is a gift. And something that I remind myself of often is that His grace includes His help. Help. He can help you in every aspect of life. And it includes His mercy. I mean, when you're down and you need help and you're looking at judgment without His help, and you get mercy instead of judgment, is that grace? <laughs> That's the very definition of grace. And is that help? Did it help you come out of that situation? So his grace is his help. But according to these verses, not everyone experiences the grace of God. There's another verse in, in Hebrews that we'll get to at some point that talks about people failing of the grace of God, are coming short of God's grace. How is it that God being so gracious and having extended and made his grace available to everybody, that not everyone experiences it, that not everyone enjoys it, that not everyone is receiving it? Well, here he very plainly says, God gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Everybody say that out loud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do the proud get the grace? Well, if they did, what would be the point of saying this? 
Everybody gets the grace. No, the proud don't receive the grace. And, and, and here's the thing. The, the, what we're talking about of covering, hiding, not taking responsibility, blaming is an aspect and an indication of pride and fear. And you're not going to be born again if you won't even acknowledge that you're lost. <laughs> Can you see that? If you won't even admit that you need a Savior, you're not going to receive forgiveness if you won't admit that you've sinned. I mean, what would there be to, to be forgiven for if you won't even admit that you've sinned? You're not going to receive restoration if you won't admit that you've fallen. A big part of humility is honesty. It's a big characteristic of humility. And uh, who gets the grace? He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil. And included in this is resist this temptation to lie, to cover, to hide, to blame, resist that, and it'll flee from you. And verse 10, he goes on to say, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And no time is a more important time to do that than when you've made a mistake, than when you've messed up. The worst thing we could do is to go into this denial and hiding, and somebody say, what happened? Did you do this? And you start going, well, I don't, I don't know, but, but, but so-and-so, you know, and, and they didn't help me, and, and so-and-so, you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble, because what you need is grace, and help, and mercy, and you are rejecting it by refusing to acknowledge that you even need it. I mean, you don't need forgiveness if you hadn't done anything wrong. You don't need mercy if you haven't failed. No, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? That if you're in trouble, what do you do? You hit the deck. What, what did you do? I did it. I messed up. Why did you do it? Just dumb. Just yielded to the flesh. And, and don't point at anybody else. Don't point at your wife. Don't point at your husband. Don't point at your coworker. Don't point at your supervisor. Don't point at the government. Don't point at the Democrats. Don't point at the Republicans. Don't even point at the devil. Because he's never made you do anything. All he can do is tempt and pull and influence. He didn't make you say anything. It was your choice to say those words. And you, He didn't make you do anything. We must, if we want this grace and mercy, we must take responsibility for our own words and actions and choices. And if we'll do that and humble ourselves, He will lift us up. Oh, He's the glory and the lifter of your head. When you're knocked down and you feel bad and your head's down, if you'll humble yourself, don't lie, don't hide, don't blame, confess, be honest, and he will come along and lift up your little chin and say, you confessed it, receive your cleansing, receive your forgiveness, receive your righteousness, hallelujah, and if you receive it, you are as clean as though you never made a mistake. But you got to receive it. He did do it for you. Just because you made a mistake doesn't mean the Lord needs to do anything else to pay for your sins. That's already done. But it doesn't mean you've received your forgiveness just because it was provided. And only the humble receive this grace. Humble yourselves. In the sight of the Lord, he'll lift you up. Look at the very next verse that's connected with this humbling yourself. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Judges are not doers. And doers 
are not judges. What will happen if you judge somebody else and you don't repent? You will be judged, and that's opposite of mercy. That's not getting mercy. The Bible said mercy rejoices over judgment. But the Scripture also said in 1 Corinthians, if you will judge yourself, oh, this is some of the best news you ever heard in your life, child of God, if you'll judge yourself, now that is quite different from blaming somebody else, right? If you'll judge who? Not your brother. And see, when you're blaming somebody, you're judging them. You're judging them. Well, what's going to happen according to Jesus? You're going to get judged. But if I don't judge them, if I show them, even if they were involved in the problem, even if they did hinder me, even if they did lead me astray, it's my fault I listened. It's my fault I followed the bad advice. I got the Holy Spirit. I could have done something different. Can you see I'm talking about taking responsibility? Even if they were a big part of the problem, that's between them and the Lord. I'm responsible for what I've done. They're responsible for what they've done. And if I won't judge them, even if I'm upset with them and don't act like I care much about them, just for personal survival, I don't. Need, I must not judge them. Because if I judge them, come on, what Jesus say? What Jesus? I'm going to get judged. That means I won't get the mercy. Look with me, if you would, please. In the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, why are we talking about this right now? Brother Keith, why are you preaching on this? (laughs) Well, the main reason is I believe the Lord's directing us to. But I can already see what's the biggest thing we need right now? (laughs) We need help. Is that right? We need help from somebody that can do things that no man can do. Is that right? We need help from the Almighty. Well, another way of saying help is grace. We need grace, and we need a lot of it, and we need more grace. Who gets it? Come on, help me out. Who gets it? Not the proud, not the deniers, not the hiders, not the ones that cover, and not the ones that blame everybody else. If we're going to get help, we've got to do what this is talking about. Thank you, Lord, for giving us answers. Thank you, Lord, for giving us help. In Hebrews 12, now Hebrews 12 comes right after Hebrews 11. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Which reminds me of faith school. We got a good testimony. What, wasn't that? Was that you, Tom? Told, we, we had a, a really good testimony of somebody that said they had, uh, faith school had helped them a bunch during this time. And let me encourage you, if you've uh, got some extra time on your hands around the house there, it'd be a good time to feed your spirit and build it up. We've got some good series that would help, like Perfect Protection, uh, like Sustained, and we got a bunch of uh, classes on faith, faith school. And one of the things that we've been doing in more recent times is going through this entire 11th chapter of uh, Hebrews, looking at verse by verse and getting the faith out of that to feed our spirit. So let me encourage, it won't cost you anything. Go to the website and uh, Go to faith school. Go to faith school. This wasn't written in chapter and verse. So as verse 39 of chapter 11 flows right into chapter 12, I said 39, that's wrong, verse uh, 40, then, then chapter 12, he said, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Say it out loud, confess it, say, I'm looking to Jesus. My eyes are on Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of my faith. He said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How do you get through hard things at present? You look beyond the present to the victory, beyond today to the future. And it says, uh, he despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And uh, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Now let me remind you, because we'll see this in just a few verses. His subject for the next several verses is correction and about receiving correction, whether you receive it or whether you don't, whether you despise it and reject it or whether you humble yourself and receive it. And this is such a big deal. We, uh, our current society despises anything to do with submission or just the word obedience. People despise it. And that's because of such a prominent manifestation of the nature of the ruler of this world, the God of this world, Satan himself. He is the most defiant, most disobedient, most rebellious spirit there is. And when it comes to walking with the Lord, there's no such thing as a child of God who never needs to be corrected. No such thing. You or me or any of us that have already arrived at Christ-like perfection and everything we say and think and do is exactly the perfect will of God and we never need to be corrected, that's ridiculous. We need correction on a regular basis. But uh, you'll find that a lot of times people have grown up with little or no correction. They weren't corrected as children. They weren't corrected as teenagers. And man, if anybody tries to speak anything corrective, they just, they just get mad. They get hurt. They go into a rage. They, they go into, you know, being um, depressed. And that is all fear and pride and refusing to admit that you made a mistake. And here he says, have you forgotten the exhortation? My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Years ago, when I was 10 years old, my dad put me in a school of martial arts. It was old school. It was, we practiced on concrete floors, and there was no, uh, well, it was old school. But uh, the way that the instructor would correct you is they would tell you the proper stance or the proper punch or kick a couple of times, and then if you didn't listen and you weren't trying to get it right, the next thing you would feel would be your legs swept out from under you, and you'd bounce off that concrete floor. And the correct response was, thank you, sir. <laughs> Say, what? Yeah, you're thanking them because they're helping you to see the error of your bad form. <laughs> now, a lot of folks have lost that, but it didn't hurt me at all. It helped me. It didn't hurt me at all. I could appreciate Now, there's some folks that's mean, and I'm not talking about that, but people that are just, uh, you know, have a high standard, and they're holding you to that standard, and can tell if you're trying, or if you're just being sloppy and not trying, and if you weren't listening to instruction, then you need something else. <laughs> like a good swift sweep. And so uh, that's what we got. And so this should be our response. Yes, he goes on to say, no chastening at the present is enjoyable. You know, you can't say that you enjoy being corrected. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. That's just not the case. But you can be spiritual enough to say, thank you, sir. 
You don't have to bring up the fact that you're not enjoying it. But part of what can be going on is that your pride can be dying. And there are things in us that need to die. Have you ever heard about crucifying the flesh? This is part of this. There are things that need to die, and that's the only way that they do get dealt with, is when they come up like this, and when you respond correctly and deal with it correctly. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't faint when you are rebuked of Him. What you'll see most of the time is people despising correction or fainting and just going, it's too much. I can't take anymore. And you'll hear people talk about this. I never do anything right. I just never. You know that's a lie. You know that's a lie. I can't do anything right. This is the language of rejecting instruction, rejecting correction. And a lot of times people will look just in aghast, like, did I do something wrong? Well, do you imagine that you never do anything wrong? That everything you do is perfection? Everyone, said out loud, everybody needs correction from time to time. Everybody, everybody. And if you're never getting any correction, then you're not around people who love you. Why? Where'd you get that? Right here. Right here. Verse 6. For whom the Lord, what? Loves. He chastens. And he scourge. He corrects and chastens every son whom he receives. Keep going. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? There's no such thing as a child that never needs any correction or reproof or discipline. No such thing as a teenager never needs any correction. No such thing as a child of God. (laughs) I don't care if you're 80 years old. You have not arrived, which means from time to time you need correction. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is he whom the father chastens not? Keep going. If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're, other translations say, fatherless, and you're not sons. Well, are we sons and daughters of God or not? Well, then that means we get corrected. And we should, like my old, uh, you know, karate days, if we find ourselves getting corrected, was it fun? No. But what should we say? Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Why? What we should realize He cares too much about me to leave me the way I am. He cares too much about me to let me continue with my idiosyncrasies that are not like him. He cares too much about me to let me go on pretending this is okay when he sees clearly it is not okay. But the question, he's faithful. He loves us. He will do it. The question is, will we receive it? And the fact is, many will not. Many will despise it, and many will get mad and faint over it. If you're without chastisement, you're not a son. Verse 9, furthermore, we've had fathers. Now he's talking about natural human beings of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence or respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live even though Our parents might not always get it right. We should show respect to the place. Even though our spiritual elders might not always get it right, we must show respect to the place, or elsewise you're disrespecting God who established the place and the principle of correction. Verse 10, They verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. They corrected us. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. This is his nature. What's he doing? He's working on us to grow up to be just like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's helping us. And how ignorant would it be for us to be so indignant that we don't need any correction? 
Can you see this child of God? Say it out loud. Everybody needs to change. Another way to say that is grow. We need to grow. Develop. Growth is change. And part of that is correction. They did it, uh, you know, as they thought best. But what he's doing is for our certain benefit. For our certain profit. Every time that we might be partakers of his holiness. Keep going. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous. I don't care who it is. If it's from the Lord himself. Getting corrected is not fun. The person that said it is, is either lying or they don't know what's going on. No, nobody enjoys getting corrected. But it's grievous to the flesh. But that's part of you that needs to die. Nevertheless, afterward, not at the moment, but afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. If you're a good parent, there'll be some times your children are not enjoying you and they don't like you for a little bit. But afterward, they'll see the benefit. The same with uh, leaders, with, with, with godly leaders. Keep, keep going. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Now, let's go back to what happened in the garden. What happened to them? They were turned out of the way. Can you see that? They, they didn't get restoration at that time. Now, God had a plan, but they were driven out of the garden. They were driven away from God's presence. They did die separated from life, like we've been talking about on Sunday. On that moment, and centuries later, their bodies died too. But that, that death in their body and life began when they sinned. Wages of sin is death. Here, it's say, the Lord's will is not that people be turned out of the way, that people be judged, God's not willing, Peter said, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, which shows this is the key to not getting destroyed. <laughs> what, what is repentance? Not hiding, not covering, not blaming, but accepting responsibility and acknowledging and confessing, admitting, and you will get mercy. And grace to help in the time of need. He, he said, let it be healed, rather. Verse 14. Follow peace with all men in holiness. See, he, he got through talking about this correction results in us partaking of God's holy nature more and more. Without which no man will see the Lord. And through this, we see what is God and what is not God more and more and more. All the way until we actually see him literally <laughs> later on on the throne. Now, I read all that to get here. Looking diligently, lest any man, what? Fail of the grace of God. Can you fail of the grace of God? What does that mean? This same word or words are translated in at least two other places in the same King James New Testament come short, come short. Instead of saying fail, it could equally be translated come short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Now here we see the second instance, just a chapter past our text there in Genesis of what happened with Cain and Abel. Did Cain become embittered? He most certainly did. Did he take responsibility for his own actions? He refused to. And he wound up listening to the thoughts and lies and feelings of the devil and blamed everything on his brother. And that bitterness destroyed him and wound up destroying his brother too. This bitterness 
is contagious. You don't want to spend time around bitter people if you can avoid it at all. Why? Because it's dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. Bitterness, the very word in the very Greek word, paints a picture of sour and sharp and acrid and acid. And you can see it on people's faces. You can hear it in the tone of their voice when they start gritting their teeth and they start saying things that are hard and judgmental. What are they? They're bitter. They're bitter. Well, what's the problem with that? Unless they change, they're not going to get grace. They're not going to get help. It'll only get worse and worse and worse. And if you hang around and listen to it and mull around in it, next thing you know, you'll start talking like that too. Why? Because many can be defiled by this thing called bitterness. Bitterness. We're not supposed to be bitter souls. We're supposed to be joyous people, peaceful people, gracious people. We're supposed to have something good to say. And if we're letting the love of God dominate us, we don't even keep track of suffered wrongs. So how could we be bitter about it? We're not even keeping up with it. Somebody says, well, what about what old so-and-so did to you? You're like, ah, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. If we're going to do anything, we need to pray for them. Why? Because if they're bitter about it and they don't repent, they're going to be in trouble. And no matter if we don't enjoy being around them at the moment, we don't want to see them judged. We don't want to see them hurt. If you care about people, looking diligently, I mean, that's a strong phrase. Watch out, be vigilant, be on the watch, diligent, that this doesn't happen to you, lest you come short and fail of the grace of God, lest, and this all goes together, lest a root of bitterness springs up and trouble you, and if you let that root grow in you and put roots down in you, Eventually, it'll put up branches and bear fruit, and other people will eat the fruit, and they'll get bitter too. Next thing you know, the bitterness has spread through the whole house. Next thing you know, the bitterness has spread through the whole department, the whole area. We've seen it. There's all kind of examples of it in modern life. He's saying, don't let this happen to you. And then he gives us a Individual example, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. He uses Esau as a prime example of all he's been talking about, about receiving or not receiving correction and about getting bitter. He mentions Esau as a standout example of this. He said, he, for one morsel of food, sold his birthright. Now keep reading. You know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing. Now this is interesting. Even after he sold his birthright, he still tried to get the blessing. He wanted the blessing, but not the birthright. Can you see this? We'll be talking about this a little more as we go. He was rejected. And he found no place of what? Repentance. Which is what we've been talking about all along. He found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What does that mean? What does that mean? Go with me back to the book of Genesis. And let's, uh, let's remind ourselves of what happened there. In Genesis chapter 25, we're told by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 12 that Esau was a profane individual. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with somebody who treats holy things as though they are common. Someone 
who is not respectful and not reverential of God and his things. And you see that right here. Esau was an outdoors type guy. He was a hunter. And on this particular day, he didn't catch anything, didn't shoot anything. And he's obviously missed a meal or two and he's hungry. And he comes back in in Genesis 25:30, and his brother, who liked to hang out at the house, was apparently a cook and had some real uh, stew going on. Red pottage, it says. And uh, when uh, Esau came in and he smelled this pot uh, of stew cooking, he, he comes over to his brother and he says, uh, feed me this uh, uh, red pottage. I'm faint. I'm hungry. And uh, therefore, it was his name called Edom. I mean, this affected his name and everything about him, this pot of stew. They didn't know it, but this is a very important pot of stew. And uh, Jacob said, fine, sell me your birthright. (laughs) Now, was it nice to do this? Probably not. But the thing is, Jacob values this. And we'll see in a few verses here, Esau does not. This is such a huge deal. God gives his holy and precious things to those who value it, who appreciate it. We live in a world full of disrespect and devaluing and discounting and despising. And that's why you don't see a lot of the A lot of people everywhere understanding the things of God and enjoying the things of God. Because as long as you despise it and you say, ah, there's no God, there's nothing to all that preaching and all that church junk, well, you will be oblivious till you draw your last breath if you don't change. And it won't be because it's not there. And it won't be because it's not wonderful. It'll be because you are a profane person. You don't value what's holy and what's good and what's God. But those that do, to those that value it, God gives of his precious things. And if you appreciate what he did for you, he'll give you more. And if you appreciate it even more, he'll give you even more. He's very big on stewardship. So Jacob says, sell me right now, today, your birthright. And Esau didn't even negotiate, didn't even argue with him. He said, look, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do for me? Do you really believe he think? Now, he's already made it back home out of the woods. Mama Nim's house is right over there. Do you think he really believes he's going to die? If he doesn't get some of his brother, no, no. He does not think he's literally about to die. He just does not respect and does not value the spiritual birthright. God chose Abraham, his grandfather, made covenant with him, called him his friend. This is passed down to Isaac. Now it should belong to him. It should be one of the most precious and important things in his life. It should be one of the greatest things he's looking forward to. And what does he say? Ah, I'm hungry. I'm about dying from hunger. He wasn't dying. I, yeah, give me, give me some. Sure, sure, you can have it. Sure. This is not okay. Somebody says, well, maybe he didn't really know what he meant. He should have. He's a grown man. He's, he's come up around this. He's heard, all, he's heard stories about Adam and Eve. He's heard all the stories about his grand. He's not that far removed from Abraham. He knows Abraham. <laughs> He's heard the stories of him talking to God and walking with God, cutting the covenant. What good will this birthright do to me? And verse 33, Jacob said, okay, now it's a deal. Swear to me. Sell me your birthright. He said, deal. They shook on it or whatever they did in those days. And Jacob gave Esau the bread and the pottage of lentils. So it was lentil stew. And he did eat 
and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. To despise means to treat it as though it is of no value. You know, we got the words over our platform here from the scripture that says, those who honor me, I will honor, God said. That verse went on to say, those that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You'll be treated the way you treat him. You treat him and his things as though they're unimportant. You and your things will be treated as though they're unimportant. You honor God's things and treat them like they're the most important things in your life. God will honor you and your things will be treated as important and significant and valuable. But Esau despised his birthright. Big mistake. Skip down to the 27th chapter, 27 and 34, because here we have specific text that describes what Hebrews said. Hebrews 12 tells us, now now don't forget, that was in the context of receiving God's correction. And then a warning about not getting bitter like Esau. And then it says that after he sold his birthright, because he didn't care, that when it came time to receive the blessing, he wanted to get it. He expected to get it, but he didn't get it. But then he, even crying, he couldn't find a place of repentance. Now, what does that mean? Couldn't find a place of repentance, even though he was in anguish about it and cried about it. What happened? Here's the text, Genesis 27:34. You know the story. Jacob's mother, when she heard, you know, Isaac tell Esau to go get the game and come back, he was going to bless him as the firstborn. Of course, I don't know. I doubt he even knew about this deal between the boys that he had sold his birthright to Jacob. I imagine they kept that under wraps. But his mother heard it and, you know, told him, told Jacob, you go and we're going to fix this food and you put on Esau's clothes and you go in and you get this blessing. He said, no, I can't do that. She said, yeah. He said, I'll bring a curse on myself instead of a blessing. She said, well, if that happens, that curse be on me. You got to remember back when she was pregnant, there was a tussling inside her womb between the two. She, she had the two at one time. And it was such a deal that she went to the Lord about it and said, Lord, what's going on with me? What's going on with these babies inside me? And he told her that there were, there were going to be two nations and that there would be a struggle and that the older would wind up serving the younger. Well, she never forgot that. And you remember when they were born, Esau was born first, but then uh, Jacob grabbed his heel and said, not so fast. (laughs) And so even though they they weren't even conscious of what was going on, their destiny was already working in them. And and so she had, uh, had held that in her heart, and she believed that he would have the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn, even though... He was not literally firstborn. I guess by seconds Esau was first. So she's pushing him to do this. So he did. And he went in there and uh, his dad couldn't see well. And so he said, well, your voice sounds like Jacob. But he he said, come over here. And he smelled his clothes. He said, but it smells like uh, Esau. You know, they didn't bathe that often in those days. So (laughs) yeah, I'm joking. He said, he smells like Esau. And he ate the food, and he called him over, and he spoke the blessing of the birthright of the firstborn over him. And he released faith in it. Well, as soon as he got done and got out the door, here comes Esau. And he says, here I am, Dad. I got the game. I got the, you know, the 
the barbecue deer, just like you like, the savory meat. And he said, hold on, who are you? He said, well, I'm Esau. He said, well, hold on, I, I just I, I just blessed. And he said, and, and he'll be blessed too, because he had already released it. These things are more real than we might have thought. He couldn't say, well, okay, Nick saw that, because, you know, you lied to me. So No, he had released it, and it was released. And so when Esau heard that, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. You already see that word bitter here. And he said to his father, bless me even also, O my father. And he said, my brother came with subtlety and has taken away my blessing. And he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. Is this true? No. He didn't take anything from him. He willingly sold it to him for a bowl of stew and a piece of cornbread. Did he have to? Would he have really died and fell out and died if he hadn't had that bowl? Mama's house is right over there. You think he's going to die within walking distance of Mama's house? Uh-uh. He, he wanted that stew and he didn't respect spiritual things. The problem was not valuing and esteeming the birthright. And he said, he took it away from me. And now he's taken away my blessing too. And he said, don't you have reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him your Lord. This is the prophecy coming to pass. The Lord had said before they were born, the elder will serve the younger. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows who will believe him and trust him and who won't. He knows who will value his things and who will despise his things. He said, I've made him your Lord and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. With corn and wine I've sustained him. And what shall I do now unto you, my son? Just let me interject this here. Phyllis and I, uh, my wife and I, became acquainted with the Word of Faith back in uh, 1978. And it changed our life forever. And before we left home to go to Raymond Bible Training Center, which we did in uh, 80 and 81, and they two and three and stayed there for years. But um, my grandmother was a wonderful woman of God, a real saint of the Lord, and a, a prophetess, though they didn't know, even know what that was. She'd have visions and dreams, and they'd come to pass. But I, I had learned just enough by 79 or so to know that the blessing was important. And before I left, before we left for Bible school, I came to her one day, and there was nobody in the house but me and her. And I said, we called her Mama. I said, Mama, I said, uh, would you pray over me and bless me? And she teared up, and she didn't know much about these things, but she knew God. And she laid her hands on me and started praying. And we were in in that tiny little bedroom of theirs. But I'm telling you, it's holy to me to this moment. She didn't prophesy a bunch of extravagant things, and it was very, very simple, because that's all she knew. She just, she just put her hands on my head and said, bless him, Lord, and, and he did. <laughs> and why am I saying that? This should not be something that we only see in the book of Genesis. This should be something that happens in all of our families. At the right time and the right place, mama, daddy, grandma, grandpa, lay hands on children. Now, they, they need to be old enough to understand what's going on and to show some respect because, again, a lot of what happens will depend on their, the child or grandchild's respect for this. 
But this needs to happen in modern times. This speaking of blessing. Can you see how real this was to Isaac? It was so real to him. He's been waiting to do this all their lives. For the right time. And the right place. And now he senses, I'm not going to be around much longer. And now's the time to do this. And he made a big deal out of it. Had a special meal. And had him come. And of course it was it was Jacob instead of him. But he thought it was the firstborn. And he released faith that had been building in him for decades. And it was so real to him that when Esau comes in and says, Well, no, no, you gave it to the wrong one. He says, I've released it. That's how real it is. I've released it. And he is blessed. Why? Because Jacob... Why would that even cross his mind as a boy, as a youth, to say, I want that birthright. I want that birthright. Why? You know, a lot of times kids, you know, if they're not taught right, they don't act like they care much about spiritual things. But they should, and they would, if it was treated that way by their parents, and they had a heart for it. So he said, I've done it. I gave him to be your Lord, and I gave him all his brethren for servants, and with corn and wine I've sustained him. The blessing is real. You know, we camped on that for uh, weeks here not too long ago in that series about redeemed from the curse of the law. And it'd be good if you hadn't heard that, pull that out, because we spent a whole night on being redeemed from sickness and every kind of plague and and, and, and a lot of the things that are going on right now are actually mentioned by name in that text. And the Bible said Christ has redeemed us. Hallelujah. From the curse of the law. He said, what will I do for you? Verse 38. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me too, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. He lifted up his voice and wept. And we see that Isaac did speak a blessing over him, but it was not the blessing of the firstborn. But here's the answer to questions that we asked previously. Go back to Hebrews 12. Now, I think we should read it again. Having read this text, what happened? What's it got to do with the blame game? Hebrews 12 Hebrews 12, verse 12, Hebrews 12, 12. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. This reminds me of what God told Cain. Cain's countenance fell. He was angry. He was in a rage because the Lord didn't receive his uh, offering. And you know, God wasn't so afraid that Cain would get upset and too mad that he didn't correct him. He did correct him because he needed correcting. He said, I'm not, uh, son, I'm not accepting your, your offering. And boy, it made him mad. And he told him, he said, look, if you'll do well, shall you not be accepted? In other words, This does not have to be something that winds up getting you turned out of the way. It can be healed. It can be restored. It can be fixed. Let it, but you have to choose to let it, let it be healed. Verse 14, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. This is the phrase we've been talking about all night. Esau is a perfect, vivid example of somebody coming short of the grace of God. I know the grace of the Lord Jesus wasn't available to him back then, but God has always been gracious. And he's been gracious and kind to people all through the Old Testament. And Esau failed 
of the grace of God. He's warning, don't let this happen to you, lest some root of bitterness springing up and trouble you, and also wind up infecting other people and defiling many. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. And for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What does this mean? Here's the thing. I, I didn't always see this, and I'm thankful for more light on this. What does that mean? He found no place of repentance. We just got through reading the text of what happened. When Esau came in after despising his birthright, but he still wanted to bless him, he, uh, he's not trying to repent over selling his birthright. He didn't even bring that up. He took no responsibility for his own actions and choices and decisions. He completely blamed Jacob. He said, he took my birthright away, and now he's taken my blessing. That's a lie. That is a lie. And though he cried and wanted the blessing, he never repented. He never repented for despising you know, his birthright, for not valuing the things of God, that's a big mistake he made, treating the spiritual birthright like it was nothing. And you'll see that same kind of thing going on today. What, what does that mean? Oh, but he wanted the blessing. He wanted the blessing, but not the birthright. See, the birthright carries responsibility. You've got to take the responsibility for leading the family. You got to take the responsibility for going to God and getting direction for the family. You got to take responsibility for being the leader and overseer of the whole bunch. And that's the case with so many. They want the blessing, they don't want the responsibility. They want the benefits and will cry in desperation if they don't get the blessing. But the problem is, they didn't want the responsibility. They didn't want the birthright. Oh, I want the blessing. I want the benefits. I want the benefits. Yeah, but you rejected the responsibility. Can you see what he's been talking about through this whole passage? He found no place where he humbled himself. The right thing to do would have been hit your knees and go, I missed it. I missed it. I did it. I'm the one set this in motion. I sold my birthright to him. No wonder he thought he could get the blessing too. I didn't respect it. He should have, the, the tears should have been about that. But the tears, Esau's tears, he was a profane person. He was a disrespectful, irreverent person. He wasn't crying because he had sinned and missed it. He just crying because he didn't get everybody as his servants. Because he didn't get the preeminent number one spot. Because he didn't inherit all the money. He didn't repent. There was no place of repentance in his heart, in his mind. He wanted the blessing, not the responsibility. Stand on your feet. This ministry has been brought to you today free of charge by the partners of More Life Ministries and Faith Life Church. If you would like to help send this word to others at no charge, you can become a word sender today. For more information, visit our website at morelife.org.